Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I cannot tell you how it's difficult this feeling. A humanitarian crisis unfolding right now. Eight million Ukrainians leaving their homeland since the war started. While Russia destroys much of the country's civilian infrastructure, Samantha Power heads the U.S. agency helping on the ground. I'm here at the crossing point where Ukrainians are entering Poland. She knows war all too well. On the front lines as a reporter three decades ago and winning a Pulitzer Prize for her book on genocide before becoming the face of Obama foreign policy at the United Nations. Are you truly incapable of shame? Now she's leading what may be her most difficult mission yet. We have two things in common. Do I get a hint? I find cooking really hard. I find it really stressful. Do you feel your life is in danger? And the love of my mother is what brought me here. What was the worst investment? Oh, there's a long list of really bad ones. Samantha Power, welcome. I have been looking forward to getting to sit down with you. Me too. Uh, Let's start with Ukraine, the big issue. Uh, Your agency, USAID, has provided more than $12 billion to that country since Russia invaded. What is that money going for, and how are you doing in keeping up with the destruction that Vladimir Putin has unleashed? Well, USAID's job is to work with our Ukrainian partners when the energy grid is hit, to get it back up as quickly as possible, to work with our Ukrainian partners on ensuring that there is cybersecurity protection, uh, to digitize. um, Even as as this war is underway, Ukraine is still working to build out the institutions of this democracy. We work in the food sector to try to ensure that grain that has been backed up because of Russia's blockade of the Black Sea, and even now it's kind of temperamental relationship with letting grain out, Uh, we need to diversify and make sure that the Ukrainians can move grain into Europe by river, by barge, by road, And and are you keeping up with Vladimir Putin's? I I think so. I I do think so. And it's not us keeping up, it's the Ukrainians, and we're there to support and make sure that they can, they have the generators and the boilers and the transformers and the substations to replace. So we go hunting and foraging uh, on on the open market to try to get them the supplies they need, but they're the ones that are out there on the front lines with their flak jackets and their helmets, you know, trying to replace that which has been destroyed. But Ukrainian morale now and its resolve, I think, is greater than it was even on February 24th when Russia first invaded. As I mentioned, $12 billion so far from USAID, but you hear a lot uh, from people in the country, especially GOP officials, that instead of spending money on other countries, including Ukraine, we should spend more at home. And here is a a top Republican House official. Take a look. No more blank checks around the world to solve problems overseas when America is on its knees at home. We can't be the leader around the world when we have such big issues to solve in America. 
After all the blood and treasure we have spent in foreign wars and in foreign aid, does Congressman Banks have a point? Look, the stakes could not be higher and the consequences of walking away from naked aggression in 2023 for the cause of freedom, for the cause of our own freedom, for the defense of Europe, I mean, the stakes could not be higher. And again, I think there is a distinct minority, no question, and a vocal minority that has expressed these concerns. But look at the track record of what people, majorities in both parties have done in Congress. And look at, you know, travel around the United States and see the yellow and blue flags and and see the ongoing interest in what is happening and the horror at what Putin is doing. You know, I think people know about villain villainy and what happens when villainy goes unchecked and to have a leader of a superpower, or at least a, a country with a superpower-sized military, allowed with impunity to just go take huge chunks of a neighbor, even conquer an entire neighbor, we know from not too distant history uh, what the consequences of, of walking away from that would be for America and for U.S. interests and the American people. One of the reasons I was looking forward to this conversation is because it seems to me that over the course of your career, you embody the inherent tension between the calculations people make uh, when they're talking about principle from the outside versus the calculations they have to make when they are actually responsible for for policy, for the uh, effect on, on the ground. How different is it when you're on the inside? I mean, you feel worse at night when you don't get your way, let's say, if you if you feel like policy should take a certain course and 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 you fail, or if one of your programs, if you're USAID, isn't delivering in the way that you want, and the stakes are so high, it could be about girls getting education or people getting COVID vaccines. You know, if the delivery goes off, what does that mean? Whereas when I was a journalist, you know, the worst that would happen is an editor would you know reject my piece or or. Uh, Maybe nobody would read it. Uh, back, back when I was a journalist, I wasn't tracking clicks in quite the way that people are now. That would have been depressing. But, uh, but you know, I think I definitely wear the, the work. You know, I, I carry it with me. And I did as a journalist in seeking to describe what was happening and what the consequences of American foreign policy were in the hopes of influencing American foreign policy. Now I'm in the room where it happens, as they say, and, and you know, bringing that same advocacy and that same... Uh, spirit to bear, but now having this toolkit uh, to actually deploy real resources and try to bring in the private sector and other actors to care about problems that ultimately are coming home to roost more and more, whether climate change or pandemics or other transnational threats. So the stakes for me as an American, as a mother, as a citizen, are very, very high, as they are for all of us in figuring out how we manage these problems abroad as a way of looking out for our national security here at home. Is it true that when you were a member of the Obama administration that the president sometimes used to say, you get on my nerves, and especially when you were pushing him about intervening in Syria, yes, Samantha, we've all read your book. Yeah, that that did happen, although, again, you can get President Obama's own accounting of that. But at the same time, he was the one, if I wasn't in the room, if for some reason I'd been left off what they call the manifest uh, by someone or some force of nature, he'd be like, where's Sam? You know, wanting, remember he prided himself on the kind of team of rivals idea and wanting to see these debates play out in front of him. These are really hard jobs that they have. 
So to be the one saying, yeah, I don't know, I don't really concur with the approach. You know, it, 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 that's never the happiest of experiences. But what is the mark of leadership in the case of President Obama and now President Biden is that they invite that, that they welcome that. And that when it's not there, even President Biden is often like, you know, y'all are looking at me. What, what, you know, what's going on in your heads? You know, tell me what you really think. You know, don't tell me, tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And that is what we need in order to iterate and, and continue to improve and make sure that we're assessing the impacts of what we're doing on the ground because good intentions buy you very little. I, I want to sort of drill down into this tension between principle and power uh, inside and outside. And, and let's go back. Let's rewind to the 90s when you were a war correspondent covering the conflict in Bosnia, and a few years after that, you wrote that book that Barack Obama said everybody had read, A Problem from Hell, America, and the Age of Genocide, which won the Pulitzer Prize. You documented U.S. inaction in atrocities, even genocide, in Bosnia and Cambodia, and in this case, in Rwanda. Rwanda was just that thing that exterminatory impulse, and we looked away. We didn't just look away. The United States went to the United Nations Security Council and demanded the withdrawal of peacekeepers who were already present on the ground. You said that the U.S. had a, quote, responsibility to protect. What did you mean by that, and why did you conclude back then that the U.S. had done so little in so many cases? Well, I think the track record, the history was fairly clear, you know, whether it's the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, uh, we all have terrible regrets about who was able to come to the United States not taking more refugees, maybe not bombing the train tracks, big debates about that. And in Rwanda, as I mentioned in that clip that I have not seen, uh, you know, over 100 days for the main policy response to have been to take UN peacekeepers out rather than to seek reinforcement or to try uh, to sanction or put in place an arms embargo, any one of a number of tools. And I think that was my point outside of government and remains my point in many government meetings, but luckily one I think that is now much more universally embraced, which is when atrocities happen, when human rights abuses happen at scale, just as when we have a you know, more traditional security threat, we have a toolbox. So President Obama, President Biden, one of the reasons they want me in the room, one of the reasons I feel so lucky to be at USAID is so many of those tools lie with us. You know, do we dispatch high-level diplomacy in a timely way in Ethiopia, for example, where atrocities have been perpetrated? Uh, you know, when now people have taken their focus off Syria, can we at USAID support the people who've been uh, displaced or, or driven really through brutal violence by Assad, can we support them as they try to build new livelihoods? In other words, it's not one size fits all, and uh, the geopolitical circumstances in which one assesses a Rwanda or a Syria or what happens in Ethiopia, those also are varied, and we as policymakers have to take into account, okay, how are the circumstances different today with Putin uh, you know, uh, on the loose and doing what he's doing versus how it might have been when, when Russia was in a more recessive posture. But I, I would suggest that Samantha Power in 1995 or 2003 was, is different than the Samantha Power, I'll fast forward to 2013, when Barack Obama 
nominates you to be the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and here you are in your Senate confirmation hearing. The United States has a national interest, national security interest, and a moral responsibility uh, to respond uh, to cases of mass atrocity when civilians are being murdered by their governments. That does not mean uh, the United States should intervene militarily every time there's an injustice in the world. When civilians are being murdered by their governments or by non-state actors, it's incumbent on us to look to see if there's something we might might do in order to ameliorate the situation. So the question I guess I have is, from the 90s to 2013 and now 2023, have you taken a more nuanced view? Because you emphasize there that while there's a national interest in responding to atrocities and genocide, you've also emphasized not always militarily. Every case has a context, and it is the responsibility of advocates as, and writers as well as policymakers to take those contexts into account. So have I changed? Of course, I hope I, we, I've grown. I hope I'm more sophisticated in understanding what works in what circumstance. But, you know, the, I was never so, I wasn't one, uh, you know, some wild-eyed person who just, and, and indeed I was somebody who opposed the war in Iraq that, that President Bush orchestrated, even though Saddam Hussein had committed uh, atrocities. I mean, you have to look at each case and, and the toolkit that exists. And the toolkit is much more challenging today than it was then, in part because of China's greater assertiveness, Russia using its veto in the UN Security Council in order for the use of force to be authorized in any part of the world, uh, unless it's self-defense, you know, under uh, international uh, law and the UN Charter, the UN Security Council needs to come in support of that. Well, Russia and China are blocking virtually all action in response to human rights abuse and atrocities at the present. I want to... Look, examine two cases, one where the U.S. did intervene, one where it didn't, and see what the lessons are from those. First of all, the decision to intervene in Libya's civil war in 2011. You were a member of the Obama National Security Council at the time. You were one of the strongest voices uh, who persuaded him uh, to join with other countries to stop Muammar Gaddafi. I asked him about Libya near the end of his presidency. Take a look. Worst mistake? Probably failing to plan for the day after uh, what I think was the right thing to do in in, uh, intervening in Libya. After we intervened in Libya and stopped the civil war and took down Muammar Gaddafi, rival militias fought for years. ISIS set up an operation in Libya. And by the end of his presidency, Obama said the Libya mission didn't work. Do you agree with that? Well, it succeeded in the short term in stopping Gaddafi from carrying out his threat to exterminate, in his own words, the rats, the opposition, you know, that, that. So that's no small thing. But, I mean, there's no question that the chaos that ensued Uh, the fracturing, um, the inability for the interim authorities and the perennial interim authorities and then the elected government to consolidate, you know, security over the country that has, you know, made life incredibly difficult for the people of Libya. Um, So I think the president put it well. It was less the intervention itself, and uh, these things are very related, so I don't mean to, to disconnect them entirely, but 
but more the fact that in the aftermath, the Libyans, Libyans of all uh, stripes, all political persuasions did not want any kind of international presence. They were all agreed on that. And they said, we got this. And yet the deep-seated cleavages that Gaddafi had helped perpetuate by not allowing for debate and political pluralism erupted into the kind of violence that we have seen. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Three hundred thousand civilians were killed in the civil war in Syria. Uh, you called when you were at the UN. You called what President Assad and what Russia were doing to the people of Aleppo, one of the headquarters of the resistance. You called it uh, barbarism and absolute evil. Take a look. Are you truly incapable of shame? Is there literally nothing? that can shame you? Is there no act of barbarism against civilians, no execution of a child that gets under your skin that just creeps you out a little bit? Is there nothing you will not lie about or justify? And yet, President Obama refused to intervene militarily and even ignored his own red line after Syria used chemical weapons against civilians. Was that a mistake? Should we have intervened? Well, I think President Obama made a calculus born uh, to some extent of what you were just arguing in the Libya context, which is that fundamentally on the ground, there has to be a certain unity uh, in order for an intervention to be more than stopgap. And I think that's a very, that was a very reasonable uh, judgment to come to. Does Samantha Power think we should have intervened to try to stop the slaughter of 300,000 civilians and the devastation of parts of that country? I have to just say my focus today really is on the atrocities of the present. I've, I've again, I've written plenty on this. This is not about Samantha Power. This is about uh, what can the United States of America do in the face of very significant geopolitical threats, in the face of uh, malign actors who increasingly have the support from very large, uh, well-resourced uh, financiers, what can the United States of America do in order to, to mitigate the human consequences of brutality? 
bring peace at a time when conflict, we've, we okay. have more conflict today than we've had at any point since the end of the Cold War. The question I guess I have is the, the evolution in you, and, I, and, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. There's a difference between being on the sidelines and spouting off and being in a position of power and responsibility and taking all of those factors into account. But let's go back to Bosnia in the 90s. You said at that time that you wished you worked at the State Department so that you could resign to protest U.S. inaction. And I guess the question I have is, when you were the U.N. ambassador in 2016, why did you choose not to resign over what was going on in Syria and the decision by the Obama administration not to intervene? Because I had the incredible privilege, as I do now, uh, of working on a given day to try to improve conditions in dozens of countries. And when I was UN ambassador, again, at the risk of going back, uh, when there's so much to talk about that's happening in the present, when I was UN ambassador, that was preventing mass atrocities in Central African Republic. It was launching a campaign to get female political prisoners out of jail, which was shockingly successful given the circumstances at the time. It was helping John Kerry negotiate the Paris Climate uh, Accords. It was bringing an Ebola epidemic in West Africa to an end just by mobilizing UN So resources. there's a bigger picture, is what there, you're saying. There, I mean, in any, in any given day, as I like to tell my team and tell myself, there's always something we can do that is useful, that is helpful. But that is a privilege I have in you know, being so fortunate to be serving where, where I can see a, a definitely a, a bigger field than when I was living under siege in Sarajevo in my early 20s. I want to talk now about you. You grew up in Ireland. You came to this country when you were nine. And you say that you became American, as you put it, playing sports. And even in college, you say, you're ambition was to be a sports a sportscaster, or as you put it, the next Bob Costas. Really? Yes. <laughs> well, once I couldn't play professional sports, which became very clear early, uh, and once my college sports career sort of flamed out a little bit, uh, that was the next best thing, right, was to uh, get Look at you to- here. So you were a little, were you a little leaguer here? <laughs> oh, yeah, but my- my, my hands are not together in the way that they might, they might be. <laughs> was, was I, I, that's a horrifying. Ty Cobb or something. There was yeah, some yeah. great player who. There was, but it, it certainly wasn't me. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I loved, it was a way of fitting in. It was every, every immigrant, I think, finds their currency. And for me, it was to rattle off RBI, ERA, statistics. I moved to Pittsburgh where the Pirates were winning the World Series, the Steelers were winning the Super Bowl. So I went to college. I was part of a team that had a sports talk show. I did play-by-play for the, the college basketball team uh, and some color commentary for the baseball team, and that's what I wanted to do. But uh, history interrupted, and I, <laughs> I found myself very moved by world events and, and, and detoured from that. But I took the journalism that I'd learned to be a sports journalist and then parlayed it into at least trying to learn how to cover uh, the war in Bosnia. So you met your husband, uh, legal scholar Cass Sunstein, in the 2008 campaign. And there you are in your rainy wedding day. Ireland. Uh, that's Ireland. You, it will shock you to hear that that's a wet day in Ireland. <laughs> you gave your two children very Irish names, Declan and Rian. But around the time you were courting 
your husband wrote a book in which he said that there should be no marriage, government should get out of the marriage business, and it should all be domestic partnerships. What did you think of that, particularly at a point when you're about to get married? When you were married to Cass Sunstein, who writes as prolifically and as often provocatively as he does, you do not get in the business of uh, parsing his latest thought experiment or his, his, uh, his latest missive. I'm not, I'm not going to comment on my, my private uh, back and forth with my husband. I think I already, I, on the way over to this interview, I was arguing with him about one of the things he's writing now. So um, no, no more. I don't, I, I, he speaks for himself. I want to take a, a, a sad turn here. You say the worst day in your professional life was in 2016 when you went to Cameroon to visit a refugee camp and your motorcade struck and killed a six-year-old boy. Um, how terrible was that? I mean, I, th- I think anybody can imagine w- what that would be like. It, it was... Um, I mean, as I said, the worst day in my professional, my personal life. I mean, it was, you ask yourself, had we not come to, to bring support to these communities, you know, with this little boy, would he still be playing, you know, out in the streets? So, um, Let, let me know. just pick up here, because you, you, you didn't know you were in another SUV. You find out, and you say, I got to go back. I've got to go back to the home of Tucson, that little boy. And your security team says, far too dangerous, Boko Haram, other groups, they're around. We can't retract, retrace our steps. And you insisted on it and you went back. I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, I think anybody would have gone back. And, and to meet um, a family that is, is grieving in the moment I mean, again, there's no, no words really to, to describe that, to see Toussaint's siblings and, and to know all that they'd be missing uh, as, as, as they went ahead. And, and you know, we uh, have done our best in that community to, to make sure that things that the community was lacking, you know, that they had and that they could remember the boy also for, for what came to exist that wouldn't have existed um, but for his short life on the earth. And, and, uh, but it was, it was devastating. And again, I don't think there was anything exceptional in, in, in going back, but it does mean, again, that the, uh, the look in the eyes of, of Toussaint's mother are, are ones that I, I carry with me. And again, feel so fortunate to be in a role where you know, there are boys like that and girls like that all the time out in the world suffering needless tragedy and we, thanks to the generosity of Congress and the willingness to continue to support our investments overseas, we're able to build those, those wells, those schools, help those farmers, um, digitize those economies, make sure that a boy like that, you know, isn't just living in a, in a mud hut in a, in a remote area, but actually has the ability to find his way, uh, you know, to a better life. So I, I try to find motivation in all that uh, is, is difficult. And again, above all, the difficulty for his family is, is something that I know they're living with to this day. Ambassador Power, thank you. Thanks for talking with us about current events and about <laughs> your evolution as a uh, 
as a voice of conscience and as a very effective person inside the government. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. You can read more about Samantha Power's remarkable life in her memoir called The Education of an Idealist, where she describes her childhood years in Ireland, her introduction to America, and what led her on her mission to make an impact on the world stage. Thank you for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.